Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Suns Von Palmer and Rob Schott join me this morning to talk about the last Liberal leadership debate, the NDP Green Alliance, and funny business at ICBC. Later in the show, Kamloops South MLA leadership contender Todd Stone joins us. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. There's a lot to talk about this week. I'm really excited to dive into it. Always a pleasure to be joined on the phone by Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw. Gentlemen, welcome. Good morning. How's everybody doing? We're all raring to go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the B.C. Liberal leadership race suddenly hit boil this week, uh, beginning with that uh, debate earlier. Uh, Keith, you moderated it. It had uh, pretty serious dust-ups throughout. Uh, any ruffled feathers coming out of it or no? Oh, I think so. I think there's uh, continuing to be a bit of um, bad blood or, or tension between Andrew Wilkinson and Todd Stone. Wilkinson was pretty aggressive in his attacks on on uh, Todd Stone, Michael Lee, and, and, and Diane Watts. And I wonder whether he overdid it. It may have cost him potential um, a loss of support for second and third choices from people. But, uh, yeah, there was, uh, there was a lot of tension there. And, and Wilkinson, I think, really increased the temperature. In previous debates, we have seen people sort of dogpile on, uh, on Diane Watts, and that, that happened again. Although, again, I think the attacks were more pointed and personal uh, from the candidates this time than uh, there were in previous debates, because this is basically their last kick at the can to make an impression. There were 1,500 people in that room, and uh, those are, I think, probably all registered voters. So the tension was, was significant. I thought Andrew Wilkinson was probably shooting for assertive, but really, really overshot. And you mentioned Diane Watts there. Uh, I thought that he really went overboard and sort of bullying her and shouting her down in that, in that one segment. Vaughn? Yeah, look, the, the rap on William Wilkinson when he got into the race, Shane, was that he was imperious and overbearing and arrogant. <laughs> well, Exhibit A was the way he dealt with Todd Stone. Exhibit B was the condescending way he dealt with Michael Lee. And Exhibit C was the way he went after Watts. I don't think he did himself any favors. I did think that the best line of the night might have been Keith, where he <laughs> when Wilkinson and Stone finished going at each other. Keith said, well, I'm glad you told us your friend because basically you couldn't tell it from the way you talk to each other. Yeah. Uh, no one's calling this race dull anymore, and what we're really seeing here, Todd, is the Liberals are finally talking about how they lost their majority last year, and they're blaming each other for the debacle. Yeah. Uh, I, I was thinking uh, in the days since the debate, if we reflect back on the provincial election uh, and the showdown in the provincial debates, when remember he got labeled as Angry John, when John Horgan really went after Christy Clark. And I thought what Wilkinson did with Diane Watts was much, much worse than that. I also thought that uh, Michael Lee sort of flirted um, with a big sort of a knockout punch when he had his dust up with Wilkinson as well. So I don't think he fared very well in that, Rob. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the Wilkinson camp did this deliberately. They felt like they needed to show some sort of aggressive opposition leader type uh, demeanor or somebody who's going to tilt Horgan back into the angry John, uh, go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him. And, I mean, fair enough, but they are electing an opposition leader. and People sometimes forget that, that they're you know, running for premier and they need to be kind and nice and, you know, no, you're going to have to be an attack dog. But it was it, he did overstep it. I agree with Keith and Vaughn. On the Michael Lee thing, I, I still, I'm not sure about Michael Lee. I, I got, he certainly acquitted himself well. Um, you know, he looked like he belonged there. I felt like sometimes Michael Lee 
is a guy who has stumbled into an incredible campaign machinery that is propelling him along in this race run by the Mark Marathon types uh, who have, uh, you know, you could almost slot anybody in there and it would uh, suddenly the machine would keep moving. And some of his lines, his knockout punch, I felt like, to me, it seemed rehearsed, you know, this idea of that that comment there is exactly why we're still in opposition, was a reach to do the the Gordon Wilson uh, moment that everyone's trying to do. So I wasn't as impressed as some people were with Michael Lee, but... uh, you know, I think at the end, Todd Stone managed to emerge as a guy who didn't really put his foot in his mouth. He's got that that kind of look, that uh, Justin Trudeau-esque look, as Andrew Wilkinson put it in one of his put-downs, but it, it may be what some of the liberals are, are looking for. Uh, Keith, what's your assessment of, of Diane Watts? Uh, she hasn't exactly uh, acquitted herself very well in the campaign, in my opinion, but she has had some bright spots. Uh, but just judging by the way that she was in the crosshairs of virtually everybody else on that stage, it just made me wonder if the campaign still have her pegged as the front runner in this thing. Yeah, that, that's not a bad takeaway. I mean, I think she's been abysmal. Uh, her performance has been very, very poor in these debates. Um, and, um, and and this last one was particularly uh, bad. But, you know, um, not all leaders are great debaters. And she may have other strengths that could become apparent when she's in the room with, uh, with other uh, uh, members and voters. So uh, I think it's an indication that she's still very much... Uh, uh, Either she's first or second or even third, but she's someone who's uh, formidable in terms of where the other candidates think she stands in terms of the first count. So I don't think anybody has her or anyone pegged at a high number on the first count. But the, co- the question for Watts is, does she, just like all the other candidates, does she have second and third choice support? Because it's a preferential ballot. If nobody's above 30% on the first count, it's a dog race. So to who, who's going to get to 50% plus one? You have to grow with second and third and even fourth choices. And that's, that's the m- big mystery about Diane Watts, whether she has that type of support, given that she's a complete outsider to this party. And one thing I noticed in that room, Shane, is that she had a fairly small contingent of supporters compared to the others in the room, uh, which surprised me, given that she's a Metro Vancouver candidate Mm. from Surrey. But she didn't have the crowd there that uh, Wilkinson, Stone, and Lee had. Uh, It was, uh, and if that's the case, perhaps she doesn't have as big a base as as people think. But again, this is is a complete crapshoot. Nobody has a clue who's going to be where on the first uh, count come Saturday, February 3rd at 5.30. I thought one of the bigger mistakes of the night, and uh, Young did it right. He he threw an issue at Diane Watts in order to, uh, from his perspective, show that she didn't really have a good grasp on it. In this case, it was Softwood. Uh, Andrew Wilkinson, again, dropped the ball when he challenged her on crime in Surrey. actually got booed for it, but I thought of all the things to take Diane Watts on about, that is not the one you want to go after her for, Vaughn. Yeah, the idea that she did nothing as mayor of Surrey does not is not fair, is not accurate. The reason that people took her seriously when she came into the race is because they thought she had done a pretty good job as mayor of Surrey, uniting a very difficult municipality, which was polarized left and right, building a coalition and governing for a stretch. So I think that was a, a, an ill-advised attack on her. The fact that all of them attacked Watts tells me that they still think she's in first place on the first count. The 
most interesting attack, though, was the fact that Michael Lee went after her. So Lee is an outsider like Watts. And if there are liberals saying we need to turn the page and put these ex-cabinet ministers behind us and go to a new leader, you think that Lee and Watts might be courting each other's support. Instead, Michael Lee said that, no, no, Watts is the high-risk option meaning Lee is the low-risk outsider. And that, again, he's positioning himself to get second choices and even first choices from liberals who are looking for change, dramatic change, but see Watts as a weak candidate and Lee as the stronger, less risky option. Rob, the one name we haven't talked about so far is Michael DeYoung. How did you have him pegged into this thing? It's tough, you know, with Mike Young, 24 years as an MLA. I think some people look at his performance and, and see the shtick that is, you know, Mike DeYoung, and they're, and they're tired of it. Um, it. You know, to me, he was perhaps the most opposition leader-like of the of the candidates. But I just think, you know, he's, he's got to overcome that that sort of fatigue that people might have. You know, there, if half the membership of the Liberal Party our existing members, and half of them are new. Um, there's a lot of people who've had a lot of face time with Mike DeYoung over the years, and they might they might just be a bit tired of that. I, I think he did fine. Um, his shot at Diane Watts over Softwood was not... I mean, probably nobody on that stage could have answered that <laughs> question with any sort of, uh, you know, uh, veracity. But uh, I, I just, I'm not sure that he connected with the membership... Uh, in the way that maybe he would have liked. And uh, she, she tossed it back at him in ICBC, too, by the way. Sorry, God, was that you, Keith, there? That, that software question from Ziong was uh, was interesting in that uh, I'm not sure TV picked this up to the full extent that uh, the impact it had. There was derisive laughter um, around the room at Watts' second answer uh, to Ziong, which I don't think any, any candidate will take booing. Uh, as an option over laughter, because laughter is a sign of disrespect and and not taking you seriously. And that was the reaction to Watts' attempt to as, as Rob says, I don't think anybody really... Uh, when, when, De- when De Jong was asking that question, I thought, oh my God, this is a trap. Because um, very few people know the technical ins and outs of the softwood file. And Watts tried to fake it. She tried to fake her answer, She and, and De Jong caught her on it. And as a result, there was this huge round of laughter at her from the audience, which, again, does not bode well for her in terms of picking up uh, subsequent support on other counts. Uh, I want to toss this in front of you three guys. Any cracks there within the party itself? Uh, I've heard rumblings, for example, on Wilkinson going after Stone on ICBC in the referendum that that was a little offside because he was at the cabinet table. We also have Bill Bennett making headlines this week, blasting Mike DeYoung for uh, basically being incompetent around around the so-called surplus. Uh, Keith, is, is there starting to show some some fractures here? Well, you know, leadership races do result in in uh, fractures and fissions and and stuff, and and usually parties get it together post um, post leadership race. There have been exceptions to that. The eighty the the Socreds of Vanderzam never really got over that eighty six leadership race. They never really did come together as a party. Uh, but um, you know, parties have to heal themselves from within. I I still wonder. You know, get a lot of tension-filled comments from MLAs about the prospect of a Diane Watts leadership. That's going to be a challenge, I think, to bring that caucus together under if she if she wins. But, you know, um, parties have faced this challenge before. The, 
the big challenge for the liberals, though, it's a coalition party between conservatives and liberals. It's easier to hold together when you're in power because there are goodies to distribute and you have your hands on the levers of power. It's much tougher to instill that discipline, that self-discipline, and stick together when you're in opposition. And I'm not convinced yet that the liberals are going to be able to remain intact that unity that you need as a political party. It's a coalition, and I think there's every possibility this thing could still fall apart. Vaughn, to you. Shane, this, what's going on with the Liberals illustrates exactly why Rich Coleman let his party down, what he did. With an outgoing, with a party leadership debate, a leadership race, you're going to get divisions. It's the job of the outgoing leader to remind everyone we have to unite after this, we have to work together, don't hack away at each other at such a level that you turn yourself into a bunch of attack ads for the NDP. Coleman is completely unable to do the one job he had. I talked to a liberal yesterday. He said he had one job, unite us as interim leader. Instead, he climbed off the fence and endorsed DeYoung, who was a divisive candidate. So they've been let down by the guy they made interim leader, and that's going to make it even harder to unite the party going forward out of this. Rob? Of all the camps, you know, it's it's interesting. I talked to Wilkinson yesterday, and he said he he felt like they had a, he had a deal with Stone where they could be critical of each other and give themselves uh, fist bumps and handshakes and laugh it off during the debate. That is not what the Stone camp felt at all. And so there's clearly a little bit of a miscommunication between those two camps. And that you know, when you talk to people around them, that appears to be the relationship that is that may not be recoverable depending on how this plays out, that there's going to have to be a lot of work between the two of them to get back on speaking terms because some bridges are, if not burned, currently on fire <laughs> as we get into the, the final few days. Uh, I want to squeak this in really quick to you, Vaughn, last word. Uh, you had some numbers leaked from the party on, on memberships and apparently uh, not as widespread from some of the campaigns as they're making us believe. Yeah, there's been a huge surge in membership. Uh, the party last week was saying 24,000 new members and several thousand still to be vetted. But of those 24,000 new members, 54% uh, of them are in just a dozen ridings in the lower mainland, mostly in Surrey. quarter of the new members are in just four ridings in Surrey. So uh, because the Liberals have this weighted system, all those new members in that those 13 ridings will only affect the vote count in those ridings, 100 points. So they, the impact on the entire leadership race is about 15% of the total weighted vote of the convention is affected by more than half those members. Now, there's 48% of the members or 46% of the members in other ridings, and they'll have some influence, but the Liberals have another problem. Uh, only a about a third of all their members have actually registered to vote. It's not enough to be a member. You also have to register. And the party is now, Shane, going around and warning members, hey, you better get registered. I heard yesterday from one of the camps only about 20% of all the new members in the ridings in Vancouver are actually registered to vote, which mm -hmm. means now they may be members, they may be signed up, they may be part of your campaign, they're not going to get a PIN number and be able to vote next week. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll continue our conversation with Keith, Rob, and Vaughn after this on Inside Politics and Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. 
This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director, Shane Woodford. Good morning. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Rob Shaw. Rob, uh, you had a very interesting story out this week about a report into ICBC's finances in 2014 out of the Ministry of Transportation. Apparently, a bunch of uh, recommendations in that report were uh, basically sanitized before it was seen by the public. And uh, subsequently, we've got a bunch of finger-pointing between Todd Stone, Mike DeYoung, and uh, former ICBC board chair Paul Taylor. Uh, so, So what is going on here, Rob? Yeah, well, this was a report uh, in 2014 that had a whole bunch of suggestions government didn't want to talk about it at things like capping injury claims, going after um, the the way that government siphoned all that excess capital out of ICBC to balance the budget, to cracking down on distracted driving and other things. And, you know, it was basically a, a bunch of lines saying the government should act to stabilize ICBC before things get worse. And that was all taken out of the report before it was made public. And now we, three years later, are dealing with a crisis in ICBC where rates are going to skyrocket. It's losing $600 million. And people are wondering, well, why why didn't we start working on this stuff, you know, years ago? And it turns out that's because all of it got scrubbed from one of the reports. Now, technically, the report came to two cabinet ministers, Todd Stone, transportation minister, and Mike DeYoung, finance minister. But they both have different stories. Uh, Todd Stone says he doesn't remember that report. Mike DeYoung says, oh yeah, I remember it. Uh, we took that stuff out because we were never going to do it. There's no point having it in the report when we were never going to cap claims. We made a decision uh, not to do that, and so we took it out. And then there's a bunch of finger pointing from former board chairs on ICBC of whether Todd Stone did a good job leading the corporation. I think as I'm getting more and more phone calls about it, it seems to be that according to people who were in the know, uh, that this is a cabinet a treasury board decision high up uh, and that maybe Todd Stone wasn't in the loop on it. But, you know, the larger issue is some of the messes that are still being dealt with by government can be pointed back to leadership candidates. And Todd Stone has a bunch of, as I've said previously on the show, dumpster fires still <laughs> roaring from his time as transportation minister on certain transit issues. And ICBC is one of them where... People think he didn't do enough to keep that corporation from being in the crisis it's in now. So everyone's using it as a bit of ammunition in the leadership race and pointing fingers. But, uh, you know, it's, it's got a long, sordid history. Yeah, and ICBC's... Which of these two emissions from leadership candidates is the most devastating about the way the Liberals ran the government? You got the guy who was in charge of ICBC, the transportation minister, saying he can't remember the report, mm. didn't deal with the report. Or you've got the finance minister, the former finance minister, DeYoung, saying, oh yeah, we had that report, we suppressed it because we didn't want to do those things. So... <laughs> What this really says about the way the Liberals govern British Columbia is they knew there was a crisis at ICBC, they knew they needed to do something and what the solutions were, and because they didn't want to take the political heat, they kicked the can down the road. Now the New Democrats are going to have to deal with it. We're not going to like what the NDP does, I suspect, but at least in fairness, they're going to deal with it. The Liberals just ignored the problem. Keith, let's bring you in on this. Uh, ICBC, as we know, is a bit of a fiscal disaster. And how much does this kind of, you know, impact that ongoing story? Well, I mean, 
mean, keep in mind, it's only Liberal Party members who are voting here. It's not the general public. So that's a big difference when you start looking at the track record of the BC Liberals as a, as a, uh, having any kind of impact on, on the actual vote. Um, going forward, I mean, some voters are going to be thinking, hmm, if I vote for so-and-so, will this come back to haunt them? Uh, others are, are much more forgiving of the candidates, I think, when it comes to any missteps that they had when they were in government. On the bigger issue, ICBC is a complete dumpster fire, and it's, uh, it's uh, enormous problems. That Even though there's a review, review underway by David Eby, uh, the Attorney General, uh, there's no easy fix to uh, what the, the crisis that ICBC is facing. It's going to be a, a, I think some major changes are coming uh, from on the auto insurance front that are going to dwarf uh, the finger pointing that's going on between DeYoung and, uh, and Stone because it's going to impact your rates. And at the end of the day, the general public is much more sensitive and interested in, in their wallets and their pocketbook and, and how much they pay for auto insurance than, than anything else. So that's uh, it's, it's a big story that's uh, emerging from the past, but it's also going forward is going to have a big impact. All right, uh, we got to take a quick break to the bottom of the hour, get caught up on the news, but we'll continue our conversation with Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Rob Shaw on Inside Politics right after this on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw. Gentlemen, this is kind of an extension of what we talked about last week, but uh, that line in the sand that Andrew Weaver drew uh, has caused enough rough waters that uh, the Premier took some time off on his Asian trade trip to have a phone call this week with Mr. Weaver uh, to, I guess, to try and find some common ground. And uh, I know I talked to Andrew Weaver earlier this week. He called the phone call cordial. And it sounds like, uh, in talking to our colleague John McComb down at CKNW this morning, uh, he's continuing to kind of ease off the that threat. Here's a snippet of what Andrew Weaver had to say this morning. I am convinced that he was getting information that was incorrect, or he was being, and, and, and that is, you know, that to me, my conversation was, was really quite good with him, and I spent a lot of time trying to pass that information to some of his uh, senior advisors, and, 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 and I don't think there's any malice or ill intention here, of course not. It's, it's the problem of people wanting to be seen as doing the right thing for the climate, but not recognizing what that actually entails. Sounds like a bit of a back down. Uh, Vaughn, what do you think? Well, I wondered all along whether Weaver was actually going to be able to make good on this threat since there is no vote or issue in front of the legislature on LNG. LNG development may be down the road for B.C., but it isn't at hand. And even if Weaver voted against it and tried to block it, I think the Liberals would support LNG uh, development in B.C. Uh, I still await the government to put out its plan for how LNG development is compatible with the climate action targets. I think it's possible from what I've seen. Weaver says it's impossible, but it wouldn't be the first time that Andrew Weaver knew better than all the rest of us how something could or would or should be done. Keith? Well, I don't think Weaver's backed down uh, so much as just it's a recognition that for all this talk, nothing's going to happen anytime soon. As Vaughn says, there's no LNG on the horizon in, in B.C., uh, certainly not this spring. So Keep in mind, the only time Weaver can take down the government, if his Green Party members follow suit, is during a confidence vote. And there's going to be a confidence vote on the budget this spring, and there's going to be a confidence vote on the supply bill, and that's it. 
there's not even going to be a, a vote on the throne speech, according to Mike Farnworth. So it's two confidence votes without any LNG in sight. So th- those should pass. We've got no reason to vote against the government on the basis of, of theoretical ideas about LNG. So then we fast forward to the fall. Maybe there's an LNG project that gets uh, uh, the final investment decision in the fall. And there'll be another confidence vote, perhaps, for another supply bill. So it's not till next fall that Weaver will be put to the test whether he wants to follow through on this. And then conceivably, if there's no LNG on inside on the fall, we go to next spring. And this whole thing may be water under the bridge by then. Weaver was in my office a couple nights ago earnestly uh, arguing that for him this is a matter of principle. He cannot support LNG because it affects uh, climate change and the reason he got into politics all along was was to fight climate change and he's never, ever, ever, ever going to back down on this. So uh, this is all a theoretical a shadow boxing bout, and nothing's going to happen for at least a few months, if not much longer than that. So it's a lot of bluster from from both sides, or, or low key from Horgan. But the ramifications, there's nothing of any immediate impact. Rob, um, you know, I pick up deep frustration from the premier's office on uh, Andrew Weaver. A lot of sighing, and you know, <laughs> this is the kind of uh, thing that they they deal with with uh, Mr. Weaver. They have to carefully and delicately handle him <laughs> on some issues. And uh, uh, the premier, to his credit, I guess, was able to talk uh, Andrew into a different uh, tone, at least in his comments uh, during their call. I, I think, you know, the liberals are going to exploit this in a mischievous way when the legislature comes back. And I remember on Site C, uh, when uh, the NDP were divided, Bill Bennett just put a simple motion uh, on the floor of the House in support of Site C and forced yeah. the NDP to have to vote on the issue, and I could see the Liberals trying to toss a motion out uh, on LNG, just a very simple, hey, do everyone support uh, LNG, and just wait to see how people contort themselves into different positions in the NDP and Greens on a, on a very uh, simple question. So it'll be uh, it'll be exploited by the Liberals in the session, but I, I agree with Keith and Bond, there's no looming deadline crisis moment that this issue will uh, prompt a confidence vote, and so for now it's just just kind of rhetoric uh, between the two sides. All right, uh, we're almost out of time here, but I did want to put this on the table because uh, uh, Premier Christy Clark has been, uh, former Premier Christy Clark has been fairly quiet since leaving office. Uh, she's showing up here and there on uh, just little events like Hillary Clinton visiting Vancouver. She's uh, headlining, I believe, a real estate conference in Toronto as a keynote speaker. But um, she went on Facebook last night uh, wading into this whole um, sexual harassment, uh, sexual violence thing that is sweeping across North America and definitely impacting the world of politics with some crazy, uh, crazy stories out of Ontario and, of course, the federal government uh, this week. Um, just a quick read on, on what she said in that Facebook post, Keith. Uh, she called politics brutal for women, uh, put out a general call that we need more women, not just elected, but in various public service roles as well. Yeah, I just talked to her on the phone, actually, and she said that there was a message there. She It, it was heartfelt, she said, and it was important to be said. There is this, this movement and atmosphere that wasn't there uh, even a few months ago, and she thought the time was right to start, you know, making the point and keep the momentum going on uh, calling out sexual harassers and, and and trying to get more women involved in the conversation and in the in the process and in the actual infrastructure of public government and particularly in senior positions. But uh, I tried to get her to go on camera, and she said no. <laughs> nice. Uh, it's interesting how the former premiers tend to shy away from the cameras, uh, almost all of them. Uh, Vaughn, what's your read on this thing? Uh, does politics need a change? Is the world of politics just too male-oriented? 
Well, I think the former premier makes a very good point, and we are seeing those changes. We've got our first gender-balanced cabinet in British Columbia because, uh, you know, there it is. So that we're seeing some of those changes, and they're very positive. Clark promoted people in government to senior positions. Uh, you know, I remember when we got our last briefing on Site C under Clark over here, the CEO of, of Hydro was a woman, the chief uh, financial officer in charge of the project, uh, and the person managing the project, uh, she was a, there was a woman there as well. So uh, that's all to the good. I do think, though, that you have to recognize the real change that's occurred here is the kinds of things. Some of these charges, the one in Ontario, go back 10 years. There are women out there who've known about this problem for a long time and didn't go public because they were told their stories wouldn't be believed. There were no witnesses. They just shut up about it. Now they're coming forward. You wonder, given what happened in Nova Scotia and Ontario and federally this week, is this the last of it, or are there other cases that will come forward where the accusers have been silent all these years will now say, finally I'll be listened to, finally I'll be believed, I'm going to go public. I think there's more to come, Rob. Yeah, I think we're waiting for the Me Too uh, to hit BC and uh, our political scene as well. It certainly hasn't hasn't manifested itself here yet, but uh, you know, I think Christy Clark... History will be a bit kinder to her on the issues of, of uh, you know, of trying to, to continue to break the glass ceiling for women uh, in politics as a, as a strong female leader, as someone who spent quite a bit of time in her office trying to mentor young women spending. Um, you know, it was an, it, in talking to her since she's left the premiership, I think she regrets not spending a bit more time publicly speaking about some of those issues. She was stuck in this place where she felt like talking about the challenges that women faced in politics might be an issue that consumed a lot of the attention of her premiership. She didn't want, she wanted people to talk about the issues that she was talking about and not necessarily always about being a female premier. And she battled that issue um, throughout. And uh, now she's uh, free of that shackle, so maybe she'll be speaking a bit more about it. But I think when we look back on her premiership, people will be kinder to her on the issue of breaking that glass ceiling. And the time, the visceral dislike of Christy Clark that some people had just overwhelmed, um, you know, some of the, the history that she was making in the office. And she dealt with it publicly too. I remember. I mean, she got she got uh, questions from reporters on who she was dating, and uh, mm-hmm. who can forget the Richard Branson comment in light of what's going on today. And the NDP had a very strong, very effective, admirable female leader, and they forced her out. Now she's finance minister of British Columbia. She's highly regarded, but it isn't just the parties of the right that have struggled with this issue. It is all political parties. Uh, last word to you, Keith. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it's, you know, my discussion with Christy Clark this morning, she pointed out, she put that Facebook post up, but she says some of the comments she gets back are vitriolic, hateful comments, and she says a lot of them are from women and from grandmothers, and she's, she's perplexed, like, why is that? Why? And again, to Rob's point, this visceral, uh, animosity to her from, from various quarters, which is hard to, to fathom in some cases, trumps, I think, a lot of, uh, otherwise, common sense but you know christy clark says she put that out there and she's getting attacked by women for it so you know go figure yeah uh gentlemen always a pleasure always appreciate it look forward to talking to you next week there we go there's keith baldry von palmer and rob shaw we'll take a quick break here on inside politics and radio nl on the other side bc liberal leadership candidate in kamloops south mla todd stone 
Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Politics? Dull? Not in this province. Listen in as some of BC's best political minds take you Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Friday mornings at 9.08. On Radio NL. Local First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome back. As always, thank you for tuning in. Pleasure to be joined on the phone right now by Kamloops South MLA Liberal Leadership Contender Todd Stone. Todd, how are you? I'm doing uh, really well, Shane. How are you today? I am well as well. Uh, got to talk to you about that liberal leadership debate. I know that you and Andrew Wilkinson are friends, but uh, and you would may know a little better than I because you were, uh, were the other half of the debate. But uh, perception watching that thing was perhaps there were some uh, some hurt feelings coming out of it. You guys talking today or? <laughs> you know, you know, Andrew and I have worked together for almost thirty years building this party, and. Uh, uh, you know, he, uh, he's done uh, a lot of work on behalf of, uh, of free enterprises around British Columbia, as I have. Um, you know, it's a spirited contest, and we're down to the final week. Uh, I, uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm not going to comment on whether or not he crossed any lines and, and so far as what he said in, the, in that last debate. But I'll say, look, for, as far as I'm concerned, uh, my, my objective was to go into that debate and, and deliver my message. Uh, which is about having a bold vision and a detailed plan, and uh, you know, I think I did that. Uh, certainly, uh, been hearing from lots of lots of party members after the debate that uh, they, you know, they they, they they watched intently and listened uh, closely. And um, at the end of it, uh, you know, I've heard lots of people say that uh, I looked like a leader and looked like a potential premier up on that stage. So um, I think I, I hit the mark. Andrew Wilkinson took you to task for uh, ICBC, the referendum, uh, things like that. You fired back saying, hey, listen, you were at the cabinet table alongside me when we made those decisions. And I've certainly heard from some in the party uh, since then who felt that that was perhaps a little overboard because uh, at the end of this thing, you guys are all on the same team and were on the same team back in the day on those issues he was talking about. Well, that's that's absolutely correct, and and that's why I said what I said. Uh, you know, major major uh, financial decisions, uh, such as those related to ICBC, uh, are made in the cabinet room. Uh, they're made uh, with the approval of the premier of, of the day, and they're also made uh, it, with a lot of uh, interaction uh, at Treasury Board. Uh, so, so for there to be any suggestion that uh, you know the, the priorities uh, it, it, and, the, and and how challenges at ICBC are dealt with are you know are, are exclusively 100% the purview of one individual is just is, is preposterous. That's not how the system works uh, any more than you know uh, issues relating to Site C or you know these the, the decisions uh, around uh, moving forward with LNG. All of this, uh, this this stuff is made as a team uh, on a consensus basis in the cabinet room. So. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm proud of my record as Minister of Transportation. I'm uh, I'm I'm excited about the issues that we're we're talking uh, talking about in this campaign, and uh, we're we're about about eight days away uh, from uh, crossing the finish line. How did you feel about uh, Diane Watts? Uh, and I, I'm going to phrase this in the context: she's obviously a rival. Uh, you've got to take her to task on the issues. You've got to uh, be stern with her from your perspective. But on the other hand, uh, I was a little uh, uncomfortable with uh, how Mr. Wilkinson sort of bullied and, and shouted her down on that stage. I thought that crossed a line. What did you think? Well, first, let me say that uh, I think that Diane has actually. Uh, you know, she has made a contribution to this leadership race, and she should be afforded the space to talk about her ideas and to express what her vision is. Uh, I did not think it was helpful at all for uh, some of the other 
candidates, uh, particularly uh, Andrew Wilkinson, to be talking over her. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he does that and does that often. Uh, I don't think that's helpful to, uh, you know, to, to accomplish what the members really wanted, which was to, to hear each of us articulate our visions. Uh, she has a lot to offer, and, uh, and she has a right through this process. She's put her name forward. She's going to be on the ballot. It's, it's a big deal to, to step up and do this. And she has a right to, to in a respectful uh, manner, to be heard uh, and be afforded the same opportunity to get her view across as the rest of us. Uh, so that was, I did find that a bit disappointing uh, uh, in, uh, in the debate. And uh, only Andrew knows, uh, you know, why he felt that, that uh, taking that tack was, uh, was necessary. Uh, continuing in that vein, uh, Christy Clark, I know, is uh, not only your former colleague, but a good friend of yours. Uh, she has not been all of that much in the public spotlight since leaving her for her former post as Premier, but uh, she did take uh, to Facebook last night, uh, kind of wading into this uh, big issue that is sweeping across uh, not only the world of politics, but uh, lots of other worlds as well, uh, with sexual harassment, uh, sexual violence, and the treatment of women uh, in the workplace. Uh, just curious what you thought of her call to have more women not just in as run as politicians but uh, to serve in public office as well well you know i first off i thought uh, that her comments were very very well written uh I, you know christy has been a, a passionate and very articulate uh voice uh for equality and uh you know ending uh bullying and you know harassment and and so forth and she led by example on on that uh, you know uh, on the issue of of, of encouraging women uh, to to run and uh, you know she never made a big deal about it uh, at one point fifty uh, percent of our cabinet her cabinet were, were women not because she had a quota not because uh, you know she was out there making a big deal about it but because she she attracted encouraged some great women to run they got elected and she put uh, the best people in in cabinet uh, 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 that that she could so. You know, I, I, I appreciated her, um, you know, her intervention uh, uh, yesterday on, on this issue because uh, I think she's absolutely right. We all have an obligation to uh, encourage uh, women to run. I, I, my campaign's been largely about that as well as, we, you know, we, we need more young people in this party. Uh, we need more uh, diverse, uh, uh, diversity in, in politics in British Columbia as well. Uh, so that's been a central message uh, of our campaign from day one. Uh, Todd, you got uh, a week to go the, this time uh, next Saturday. We're going to be finding out uh, who the person is. Uh, what's your strategy and how you feeling with the week to go? Uh, I'm feeling uh, great. We, uh, we have run the campaign that we wanted to run. It's been positive. It's been focused on a bold vision. We've put all kinds of specific ideas out there. We've, 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 we've traveled uh, 25 to 30,000 kilometers across this province. Uh, this is, has been a, a privilege of a lifetime uh, to, you know, engage with so many British Columbians and, and, and to learn so much about this incredible place that we call, uh, we call home. Uh, and, and so, you know what, I, I'm leaving it all out on the field. Uh, our team is going to work really hard for this final week. Uh, I'm talking to, you know, basically spending most of my time, uh, uh, you know, hitting a few more communities around the province. And, and, and I'm on the phone with a lot of undecided voters. And, uh, uh, you know, there will be no regrets at the end of this. I'm very con confident that we're, uh, we're going to do really well. Um, but uh, take nothing for granted. Uh, have, have incredibly enjoyed uh, the, uh, uh, the experience. All right. Uh, before I let you go, I have to ask you about this ICBC report. Uh, I know that you talked to Rob Shaw about it. Uh, there's been some subsequent wrinkles afterwards. Mike DeYoung has weighed into it. Paul Taylor has weighed into it. Obviously not a big fan of yours. Uh, what's going on here? Any, any further details in your mind on this report and, the, and those seven scrubbed uh, recommendations? Well, 
Yeah, and I actually do appreciate you asking, uh, uh, Shane. Uh, you know, candidly, this story has been really frustrating uh, for me because I didn't uh, have any recollection of a draft report with uh, with additional recommendations. And as it turns out, uh, uh, I, I actually appreciated Mike DeYoung um, shedding a bit more light on this as he did uh, yesterday. Uh, the report that, uh, in question was actually commissioned by the Ministry of Finance. And uh, uh, the reason I didn't have any recollection of it was because it actually went to Treasury Board, and it was at Treasury Board uh, where uh, the decision was made, and, and Mike Dion was chair of Treasury Board, as he pointed out. Uh, that's where the decision was made to remove uh, uh, some of the recommendations. Uh, uh, what was left were, uh, it was still a fairly robust report uh, with recommendations. That's what ended up coming to, to, to the Minister of Transportation and to me and to ICBC. We implemented all of those initiatives. Um, you know, do, did we need to do more at ICBC? Absolutely. That's why I commissioned that review in 2016. That was sitting on David Eby's desk, uh, uh, you know, days after the transfer of power took place. And it's regrettable that he and the NDP uh, threw it in the trash bin and uh, jacked up rates by 8% uh, uh, for, for the motorists in British Columbia because there are some significant uh, headwinds uh, at ICBC as there are with auto insurers all across uh, North America. And it's going to require uh, you know, more, uh, more uh, heavy lifting uh, to, uh, to write, uh, write, that, uh, write that ship. If you had been aware of the recommendations back in the day, Todd, and, and you were in the loop back then, would you have, have condoned the, the sort of sanitizing of that report or, or no? Well, uh, and I, I wouldn't use that, that word because I don't think that's an accurate reflection of, uh, of what actually happened. I mean, a re, a reports of all kinds go, go to Treasury Board. Treasury Board's job is to look through the lens of uh, uh, the taxpayer's money. And, and, and Treasury Board all the time rejects reports and amends reports and asks for, uh, you know, reports to change uh, before they're signed off. And so, uh, on my view, now understanding exactly what happened, who, when, where, and why, uh, you know, this draft report went to Treasury Board. Treasury Board didn't like some components in it and asked for those components to be removed, and, and that's what happened. We acted on everything else, uh, and, uh, you know, what I'm saying is, you know, Clearly, the challenges at ICBC, uh, you know, you have a crashes up 23% in one year and the severity and the frequency up, uh, you, um, you know, you, you're going to have to throw more at ICBC to uh, uh, keep rates as affordable as possible over the long term. That's why we, we commissioned the independent report in 2016. Uh, and, um, and all of the potential solutions are in that report. Uh, so, you know, why David Eby chose to throw that in, uh, in, in the trash bin and, and uh, kick the ball down the field for another year, Jack up rates eight percent. I mean, that's a. I, I think th- that those are the questions that need to be asked at this point. He's in charge. The NDP uh, are, are the government. Uh, you know, w- what are they going to do uh, to ensure that rates are affordable for motorists uh, over the long term? There was a roadmap in front of them, uh, mm-hmm. and for whatever reason, they opted not to uh, not to, uh, uh, to to follow any of the uh, the, the options in there. And it's, it looks like they didn't even read the report. All right, uh, Todd, we're out of time. Always a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much. Uh, a week to go. Uh, I'm excited to see how this thing plays out. Very, very interested. We'll talk to you soon. Uh, me too. Uh, all the best, Shane. We'll see you soon. All right, that's Todd Stone, Kamloops South MLA, BC Liberal Leadership Contender, and that's it for today's version of Inside Politics. We'll see you here right on Radio NL next Friday. The Valley's first choice for local news. CHNL, 610 AM in Kamloops, and streaming online at RadioNL.com.